0: Welcome to Culture Camp. On today's episode, I step behind the microphone to talk cartoons, animation, and other media aimed at children with Sean. Sean explains why Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is propaganda, mocks Batman's no-killing rule, and I explore a concerning trend among female characters designed by Pixar. You can email us at culturecamp.cast at gmail.com. That's K-U-L-T-U-R-E-K-A-M-P dot cast at gmail.com to send comments, questions, or topic ideas. Remember to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, as well as on Twitter, at Culture Camp Cast and on Minds.com at Culture Camp.
1: Hey everybody, welcome back to Culture Camp. Uh, this is Sean and I'm sitting here with Tom. And for this week's theme, uh, we don't have Gavin here, by the way, uh, much to my chagrin. He's off uh, bettering himself and doing higher and better things. So we're left to sit here and talk about high minded philosophical things that we're going to talk about today, such as cartoons. Uh, We are both grown men who grew up watching cartoons and unfortunately kept watching cartoons uh, well into our adulthood. Uh, I grew up during the uh, what's often called the Renaissance uh, Age in Disney. And so in preparation for this podcast, I did a little bit of research, and I actually went back and I watched some of my favorite cartoons as a kid. And then I wanted to look up how cartoons and animation had changed uh, over the course of my lifetime. So really like the 80s, and 90s, and the t- early 2000s. And I learned a whole lot of things. You're going to hear a lot of familiar themes coming up during this episode, Uh, certainly hearkening back to what we talked about during the aesthetics episode. So, like, very much married to the corporate Memphis style is what some people asperse as the CalArts style, Uh, which, after doing my research, I'm not ready to denounce as the pure evil that I used to denounce it as, but I still don't like it very much. Uh, We'll get into that. One of the things that I really wanted to start off with is as I was doing my research, I realized something that made me very, very sad. So... I love 2D animation. I love 2D hand-drawn animation. And 2D hand-drawn animation uh, in America, it has been around for over 100 years, but I think it really starts in proper uh, at the studio level in 1937 with the release of Disney's uh, Snow White. And ever since then, uh, there was this whole age in the 60s and 70s and 80s where you had independent animators like Ralph Bakshi, and Don Bluth, who had their own projects. Uh, so Rolf Bakshi made a, uh, a movie called Wizards. Uh, Don Bluth made all sorts of stuff, including Land Before Time.
0: And All Dogs Go to Heaven, which is an American classic. And yeah. also incredibly traumatizing At the age I watched it. Well, tender uh, age of five years old.
1: Land before time is a classic before. Apparently I didn't know they made like 19 of them. (laughs) Uh, I don't like Don Bluth didn't have a hand in those, but he definitely had a a hand in the first two. So anyway, uh, you have guys like that. And then eventually, you know, uh, both of these artists actually had their own issues with Disney's, but Disney ultimately becomes the household name in animation, Uh, their Renaissance period, uh, which starts in 1989 with the release of the little mermaid. Uh, and then you get uh, Aladdin in like 1992, and then you get The Lion King, and these are the movies that I grew up on that I thought were really, really neat. Uh, Now, one of the things that I realized as I was sitting around one day, and I wondered, what happened to my beautiful wonder, wonderful 2D animation movies, and why did they all get replaced with this crappy 3D Grubhub nonsense? that is so pervasive, uh, today. Uh, and if you go and you look around everything from like, uh, from like red and Encanto, uh, going all the way back to the Incredibles, I, it really starts with Toy Story. But what I didn't know is there's this entire era and it really starts in the Renaissance era of Disney where once Toy Story comes out, I want to say in 1994, it's 1994,
0: 1994, like Tom, pull
1: that up. <laughs> uh but whenever toy story comes out uh so like the last 2d animated film when, when is it uh
0: 95
1: okay so 95 the last 2d animated film that disney made was in 2009 that was the princess and the frog which i watched that today and i have to say i enjoyed thoroughly uh they they explore uh a princess in Louisiana uh, who has to deal with this like voodoo magic man and this uh, very sort of like haughty, arrogant, uh, rich boy prince. It's a fun movie. Uh, I watched Treasure Planet. Uh, ah,
0: that's a great movie. And it's, it's so underrated. Well, it's that's, a beautiful movie.
1: Yeah, that's 2002. So there's this period from Toy Story, uh, where Toy Story comes out, which is a 3D animated project, obviously, uh, all the way to The Princess and the Frog, which is the last 2D animation thing made by Disney Studio. Where consistently over time, 2D animation is making less and less money and 3D animation is making more and more money. Every single explanation that I ever read for this phenomenon does not... uh, It doesn't indicate anything shady going on behind the scenes. It's merely that hiring enough animators to successfully make a 2D animation project costs a bunch of money. It slows down the production process. It's actually easier to produce uh, 3D films in greater and greater volume. And so like as technology improved over this time, studios eventually just switched over to 3D. Now the explanation I don't buy is that people just overall prefer 3D to 2D projects. I think a lot of studios ended up picking up uh, 3d projects partially because they were more profitable and partially part of that has to do with the market. A lot of it also has to do with reducing labor costs, but now we sit firmly in this era where there pretty much is no more large studio 2d animation. Uh, everything has been taken over by Pixar and I gotta say, I'm a real old man about it. I really don't like it.
0: Well, I, I hate to kind of burst your bubble, but, uh... 3D animation was present even in the Disney Renaissance. If you look at some of the uh, background elements in, for example, the lion King, some of the wildebeest in that, you know, wildebeest stampede scene, those were very, you know, rudimentary three dimensional Yeah. Objects. But, it, but toy same, story, toy story is where it was
1: the whole thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's the first fully computer animated movie. And to be fair to everyone, you know, who grew up in that era, Toy, Toy Story is amazing. Toy Story is one of those formative movies that I remember watching as a kid and I absolutely loved it. And I still think it's a, a well-made, great movie. And if you are going to sit here and tell me that I'm wrong, Sean... I will. Well, fair.
1: No, that's I I can't be that contrarian. I really enjoyed Toy Story. Here's the thing, though, is that uh, everything is fine in small doses and I feel like 3D animation has done what uh, CalArts style has done with 2D animation. Because there still is 2D animation, but it's not coming out of Disney. It's coming from smaller studios uh, that produce things like Adventure Time and like Steven Universe and stuff like that. Uh, Because this is not a visual medium and you guys don't have anything to look at. Uh, I mean, go look up Adventure Time or Steven Universe or uh, Gumball or Gravity Falls or anything like that. CalArts is sort of the style where everybody has like stupid bean shaped heads with exaggerated smiles and weird eyes and bendy
0: limbs. And it's all kind of looks it all looks like it could kind of be in the same space. I mean, there, there's certain aesthetic differences, but everything looks like it would could possibly fit in a cohesive uh, universe.
1: It's goofy. It's easily reproducible. Uh, the colors are, the colors are very like lurid. They're also a lot of like very solid colors. It's it's, you usually don't get a very complex color palette.
0: It's it's newspaper comics in an animated form.
1: Actually. Yeah. I think that's a good description of it.
0: Um, and you know what? It's not necessarily a bad thing because I don't think that the target audience for this stuff needs the complexity that, you know, we were used to in the Disney Renaissance. If they're trying to do something that's a, an episodic Saturday morning or afternoon show, I don't necessarily think that there's anything wrong with creating something easily reproducible that has low labor costs, low labor, uh, resources required.
1: And here, by the way, I don't want to mislead anybody and think that I'm saying this is anything new because before the ascendancy of Calarts, you had Hanna-Barbera, uh, which is, I mean, I lo- look, I love all the cartoons, uh, and the Hanna-Barbera style, but it's not like great art. Uh, I think the, the type of art that I'm thinking most for this very, very late period is I can't remember the guy's name, but the show was Ren and Stimpy.
0: Oh yeah. Um, uh, 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 uh Krafalski. Was that his name?
1: You'll have to look him up again. Yeah. This is once again, one of the things though, that whenever I, whenever it came out that he was some sort of like, uh, Sex Fiend, I was like, well, I saw Ren and Stimpy, so that tracks. <laughs>
0: like, <laughs> I mean, there's always signs, right? Uh,
1: there, Dude, Ren and Stimpy uh, was a part of this weird era in cartoons in the 90s and early 2000s where cartoons became really, really gross. Like, between that and, like, Rocco's Modern Life had, like, a lot of, like, snot and oh, yeah. butt motifs. There was stuff like Earthworm Jim.
0: Cow and Chicken. Cow- oh, yeah, Cow, dude, and, cow chicken. and Chicken. Cow and Chicken... See, I you know, I grew up with, you know, Nickelodeon and Cartoon Network, and it was Cow and Chicken, um, Powerpuff Girls, and, uh, you know, Ed, Ed, and Eddie. And Ed and Eddie was kind of the one that did it for me. It was like, okay, you have these giant head-sized gumballs, and they're coming out looking nasty, and they've got all this lint and stuff on them. And it was that gross-out humor that was... Kind of the thing in the late '90s, early 2000s for cartoons. That was
1: due very much to like Nickelodeon, because Nickelodeon back in the '90s was like the flagship of kids' entertainment. And I still remember, I still remember my sister uh, showing me uh, Ren and Stimpy when I was a kid, and even as like a five-year-old, just uh, every like booger joke and every like every uh, gag where they like zoom in on Stimpy's butt and it's like uh, all the animation styles where they really overemphasize the butt cheeks.
0: Yeah. With the real high glossy shine. And then they come in for that, you know, that, um, up where it's almost a painterly (laughs) hyper detailed (laughs) with every mole and pimple and hair.
1: You go, So some of that genealogy, some of that genealogy of butt art still lives on through like whenever you watch Adventure Time, because Adventure Time is done in this very flat animated corporate Memphis style. But occasionally they'll just like uh, uh, like Jake, the dog or like Finn, they're walking and you'll be like, why is the butt so thoroughly animated when nothing else
0: is, you know, everybody likes that juicy dumper.
1: Well, uh, Pixar sure does. Oh God. Okay. So, uh, by the way, we have not like green room. We haven't pre-screened this show. We're literally just talking about cartoons right now. and, And I have a feeling I'm about to hear Tom's theory about Pixar butts.
0: Okay. So if you have spent any time on the internet, you probably will have seen a meme about the Pixar mom body shape. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, Pause this show right now. Go look up Mrs. Incredible. That's all I'm gonna say. Go look up Elastigirl Mrs. Incredible. She has a waist that is smaller around than her head, but her butt is bigger around than her head. And I know why this is, because I used to think that this was some, you know, sinister idea of trying to hypersexualize maternal characters and create some weird pervert you know thing going on with kids watching the show. And it might still be that. I don't have any evidence to actually but substantiate it. There,
1: there has to be a practical level explanation.
0: And there is. And it goes back to the old Butch Hartman animations, the old kind of Tex Avery stuff, where... I
1: would see the, the wolf that went like, Oh, that uh, well, that's
0: Tex Avery. I don't recall Butch Hartman being specifically involved in that. But the basic idea was you had to create a visual shorthand for an adult woman. And the sensors at the time would not allow you to draw or animate, you know, particularly large breasts, except maybe in an overly comical sense as part of the punchline of a joke. But you couldn't have a regular character that was the traditional hourglass shape. So they overemphasize the butts of women, particularly maternal characters, and it's just carried through. And Pixar has kind of run with that
1: okay so it's like it's a it's an art readability thing like we want to make this character readable as a woman yes but we're we're not allowed to draw uh huge boobs
0: we're not allowed to make them all pamela anderson or dolly parton
1: okay right so that's uh who else so there's because now that now that you mention it and i'm thinking through pixar movies you have miss incredible you also have like what was that movie about robots
0: uh there was well there was ant Cass from big hero 6
1: I never uh, saw Big Hero Six. Okay, now, um, what's what's the movie with robots? And it's like Jude Law's the main character, uh, and they 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 stay with this uh, lady who has like a giant—I mean, like a huge robo- robot. Robot, <laughs> it's not. <laughs> no, real. that was
0: uh, Ewan McGregor. It was just called Robots.
1: Okay, yeah, it wasn't like a butt dude. It was like it was like an ovipositor. It was like a thorax. It was just this. <laughs> this <laughs> it was. It's. It looks like somebody took like a normal character and then stapled. Just a butt on it. Are you looking it up?
0: I am looking it up because that I need to. I need to describe this. Um,
1: the viewers need every detail. The Viewers need.
0: Huh. Wow! Don't search robots big butt uh, in Google. Oh no! <laughs> no, you're not. Just you're not on my that. Wi-Fi,
1: are you? <laughs> I am on your Wi-Fi.
0: <laughs> so we're gonna close that window. Um, but no, I mean, it kind of makes sense if you look at animation. Animation by itself is always about the exaggeration uh, and creating that visual shorthand so that you can see based on a silhouette, whether a character is supposed to be a good guy, whether they're a bad guy, are they the hero? Are they, you know, the hero's ally or are they just a random character? There's always going to be some kind of visual shorthand to delineate the characters. And I still think there's something weird going on with it being so emphasized with the mother characters in these movies and shows but at least there is a practical reason for it.
1: Something I always wondered, maybe you can answer this for me. Uh, I always had a theory that in anime, uh, because I do eventually want to talk about <laughs> anime by the power of God in anime. Uh, no, cause look, the phenomenon of anime in the West is really, really interesting. And I've now spent quite a bit of time reading about it. Cause I'm so fascinated by it because whenever I was uh, a kid in middle school and high school, anime was weird. I still remember uh, staying up late at night and seeing these... uh, It was uh, whenever the movie Akira, which is an incredibly violent uh, anime... Whenever Akira came to America, it wasn't even called anime. It was called Japanimation. And uh, like some of the scenes from it were so violent right, for that time. They had to portray it on like late night TV. So like past 11, past midnight. And, you know, my parents would go to sleep and I uh, snuck into the back room and I'd turn on the TV and they're just like, Japanimation, Akira, he kills people. It's like, it's, It was actually some like decently disturbing scenes on there. But anyway, so as I'm, like, watching anime, one of the things I always wondered is, so, like, anime has all these wild hair colors. And the only reason that I could ever come up with why anime developed uh, all its wild hair colors and styles is because, uh, as somebody who draws, I mean, I I attempt to draw. I especially love doing uh, uh, human portraits and uh, human figure drawing. It's incredibly to get a it's incredibly difficult to get a broad range of facial detail an anime and so I always just assumed the way that's easiest to differentiate the characters other than in their dress is in their hair color and hairstyle.
0: Uh yeah, that's kind of always been my assumption because you know you're having to animate a lot of stuff quickly. Um typically with Yo oh, yeah, cuz Japan budgets. still
1: Japan still has a hand drawn and they're industry and they're really with fast they're only,
0: production. Uh, I mean, Asian animated animation studios in general still do hand drawn two D animation. I mean, um, the leg- uh, you know Avatar: The Last Airbender was created by an American studio, but a lot of the actual animation work was done, I believe, by a South Korean uh,
1: animation house. That, they did they did that with Castlevania too. Castlevania got outsourced to Korean.
0: Well, animators. and and they're. You know, they're working very fast. They're doing insane turnarounds and they have whole teams doing this. And there needs to be, again, some kind of visual shorthand because you can't spend all the time that you'd really want. uh, Like you could on a big budget movie. If you've got 24 episodes, you've got to turn around for a season. You can't spend all the time creating a unique looking character with all of this detail when you can just delineate them basically using a color palette.
1: Well, so one of the things I wonder, though, is that uh, South Korea and Japan both are sort of notorious for their animators uh, having absolutely deplorable working conditions. And is there something behind the Disney migration away from? Okay, look, because Disney uh, immigrated away from the hand-drawn art style, I highly doubt it because they were overly concerned about their workers' health. But they were concerned about how much they would have to pay their workers versus the volume they could put out and it just seems that with 3D animation they were able to increase that volume.
0: Well yeah, I mean if you can de- with 3D animation you can design a character, um, give them all the different details you want, create them, you know, with a visually recognizable aesthetic and then you just click save and oh, congratulations, you've got an asset saved that you can just And uh, there's a 3D unlock. model
1: you can manipulate in the future.
0: Yeah, you don't have to do the uh, painstaking process of hand-drawing that same face, making slightly different expressions as it, you know, progresses through the timeline. You don't have to spend however many hours it takes to animate a single second of, uh, you know, animation when you can just drag and grab, you know, grab and drag in your computer.
1: Right. I think, though, maybe this is a really big claim, and uh, I'm probably going to say it, and I'm going to feel stupid for saying it afterward.
0: Oh, I do that all the time, don't worry.
1: But I feel... Like, uh, it's kind of like everybody was really, really impressed with the movie Mad Max, the latest Mad Max movie, uh, uh, something of Fury, Fury Road, Mad Max Fury Road. And one of the big selling points on Mad Max Fury Road, I saw it in theaters twice because it was an incredible movie. Uh, it was nothing but practical effects. There was very little CGI in that movie. And as you watched the movie, there was something different about like the car chases and the car crashes. And I didn't know what it was until I heard that uh, the director really, really emphasized uh, doing practical effects. I think there is a care within hand-drawn animation, much like in practical effects, that you may not be able to like readily point out and assess what it is you like about it, but I just prefer hand-drawn animation. And once again, to go back to the meme of GitHub, uh, as we talked about in the beauty, art, and aesthetics episode when I was railing on about corporate Memphis, uh, GitHub-style 3D animation is uncanny, it's creepy, it's mandatory fun, I can almost tell that there's like no love put into it. I've always just preferred 2D-style animation, and that's not, if anybody out there is a 3D animator, you know, I'm I'm sure there are good 3D properties uh, with all sorts of love put into them. But stylistically, I just prefer one thing over another.
0: Well, to go to Mad Max, there's more CG in that than you probably realize. A lot. But it's not creating new objects. It's not doing things that are impossible in the real world. What it, they're doing is they're filming actual stunts. And then they're compositing that, vid- that film into another scene with more stuff behind it that they couldn't safely do if they were actually driving through a desert. But the... Uh, okay, this, but like
1: the main, like the centerpiece of the shot is still...
0: It's, it's a, all it's A all car flipping over another car. Yeah, it's, it's practical effects in a, in a being done in camera as the, you know, they call it doing it in camera, meaning it's, it's actually happening. And then they're compositing it, they're changing the colors. Um, and the only real version of that movie is the black and white version, by the way and that was done digitally and it's beautiful and it's amazing. And you need to see that in black and white if you haven't, because that's the true version of the movie, because it's a samurai movie. I mean, it is, it is a love letter to the Akira Kurosawa style samurai movies.
1: Okay. I had no idea about any of that.
0: Yeah. It's, and I have it. It's beautiful. Um, but you, you know, you're talking about the traditional animation. I'll tell you, there was a movie that came out in 2009 that was hand drawn and it's called red line. It's an anime movie and it's all about this futuristic race. And it is every bit as bonkers as you could want it to be. Um, wait, a futuristic race, like a car race. Yes. Like car okay. racing. Okay.
1: I was about to say like, that's super, no. that's super vague Tom.
0: No, we're not, <laughs> we're, we're not getting any, anything there. It's, it's just racing cars, but, some of these cars look like they could have been designed in the fever dreams of H.R. Um, Geiger. Geiger, um, but it's hand done. It's traditional animation, and it looks so much better than any other animated movie that came out, uh, you know, in the last fifteen years.
1: I mean, I'd have to check it out. I don't know anything about this stuff. Whenever I was like, "Oh, we're talking about animation," I stuck. I stuck firmly to the stuff within the Western. Canon and all the anime stuff I know is the stuff they showed on like Adult Swim. <laughs> I think all my friends, uh, Tom and Gavin, uh, everybody who knows me, uh, knows that I'm not particularly weeby, but I'm surrounded by people who are much more weeby than me. Uh, they've been trying to get me to watch like uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion for years, and I still refuse to do it.
0: And it, you're probably you know better off mental health wise for it. <laughs> um, but you know, I actually discovered anime because of the Toonami block on uh, cartoon network. And there's something about the shows that they had in that, that I think, I think American cartoons kind of lacked. Um, so to kind of go with that, um, American cartoons and American TV in general really had this trend where everything wraps up in a single episode. They didn't have, you know, multiple episodes, story arcs, and the the uh, the special two part episode was always kind of a, a special event with some of these you know American TV shows, but in anime you would get you know four or five episode arcs uh, sometimes where you would have an instigating event in one episode and you wouldn't fully resolve it until several episodes you know weeks later in terms of uh airtime
1: and that's because episodes two, three, four, and five are Goku charging that damn spirit (laughs) bomb
0: okay i wasn't gonna bring up dragon ball z because that was never my favorite show i know it's incredibly popular but it was i know i looked i loved it i
1: I loved watching it it was just like it's like anime never took for me but i've developed plenty of theories as to why everyone else i know loves anime and it has to do i mean i i'm historian i'm much more interested in like cultural history and so i got to come at it from that angle And it seems very obvious to me that Japan uh, because I've actually I've actually like been to Japan uh, several times. You're more of a weeb than I am. I do. It was the military. All right. (laughs) So whenever I was in Japan, the first thing that uh, that becomes very obvious to you being in Japan is that it's a different culture with a whole different set of taboos. And I think one of the reasons why uh, you get this phenomenon of just like anime love in uh, America is because west like the Western creative tradition uh first of all due to several like top down uh pressures, the fact that like a handful of studios actually own most of the creative properties, there really is a terrible stagnancy in western storytelling. look no further than the Marvel universe no I'm never going to take that back uh, <laughs> it's all like almost all like western popular storytelling is just abs i agree one hundred percent with uh Uh, What's his name? The guy who directed Goodfellas. Martin Scorsese. There we go. So, anyway, yeah, Tom's sneering here. Everybody can sneer in my presence when I tell them how much Marvel sucks. So, anyways, one of the reasons why I think anime got so popular is because Japanese culture can run outside of the very, very narrow boundaries that American creative culture has set. Uh, And I mean that aesthetically, uh, I mean that politically. I mean in almost every single way uh, that you can, like, meaningfully create, create something. It's so, like one of the things I say about, like, the Dark Souls franchise is that, like, uh, Dark Souls, uh, whenever you look at it, is very, like, readable as medieval fantasy based on european themes but if you actually play it it has quite a few japanese themes run throughout it and that's something you really can't do in the western creative world anymore it's because we're so familiar with the tropes of like knights and queens and dragons and stuff that if you're going to arrange those things you can only arrange it in a certain way and it really takes a japanese company like from software to come in and arrange it in a new way that makes it interesting now to carry that over to anime what I've noticed, uh, if somebody is, but there's, there's somebody should draw a graph of this. If you are politically extreme enough, you are going to have an anime profile pic. <laughs> and I mean this for both the far left and the far right. Now, this is all anecdotal, but you can go look it up yourself, and I imagine at least some of you out there are nodding because you'll notice the people with the most insane political opinions always have some kind of anime avatar. And I think it has to do with precisely this boundary phenomenon I'm talking about. Because what happens is like, first of all, uh, Japan is way more comfortable with like, uh, with, uh, I don't want to say like sexual looseness, but it's, a, it's a, in, a, in some ways it's a much more sexually liberal place than the United States. Pop culture wise, not necessarily in like Japanese mainstream culture, but like, They've had animes around forever that deal very openly with stuff like transgenderism, right? And there are people on the left who sort of glom onto that. And then Japan is also a lot more okay with what would be like narrowly defined as like racism and particularism within American culture. And there are plenty of like Japanese mangas out there that are widely read, like Terraform Mars which have like obvious racial undertones and like nobody in Japan is like screaming for these things to be taken down. They're just consumed and that's what they are. And I really think that the most extreme ends of the political spectrum in the West can find some sort of play within Japanese forms of media. And it's because of how immensely constricted Western
0: media is. I would absolutely challenge anyone to go on Twitter and, do some kind of survey of all the anime profile pics all the anime cat boys out there who are posting extreme communist cringe but are also posting the extreme super far-right stuff that would make you know hans herman Hoppe blush dude
1: they're like there are furry nazis out there oh yeah i didn't believe it now now i'm gonna say this in my experience almost 100 percent of like the anime furry avatar types are like viciously communist but there is definitely a rightist community out there of, of pink hairs
0: oh yeah no i mean and you know to get to that um going back to the tsunami thing um the show that i really gravitated towards uh when that first came out in american tv was actually gundam wing and I watched that too. And originally it's because, Oh, they have giant robots. They're fighting with giant robots and there's explosions and there's a pretty girl, except that was very little of the actual show. It, if you don't know what it is, it's a 52 episode show. That's mostly about the political intrigue between space colonies, earth and pacifism and all kinds of you know, no, Tom, intrigue.
1: It's about angsty teenagers, sitting in their Gundams monologuing <laughs> about their teenage ass despair. That's, I remember watching Gundam wing as a kid and I was just like, half the show is just hero. I think.
0: Yes. Sitting his name ins- is literally hero sitting yes.
1: inside dude. It was because Toonami or, uh, adult swim was originally marketed as like, is like, these aren't your dad's cartoons. Uh, <laughs> begins playing imagine dragons that <laughs> 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 it was marketed as just like, uh, late night anime, we have to show it late at night because there's stuff that's not allowed. And like, you go watch and it's just like, uh, Hiro gets cut and there's a little bit of blood and he goes, damn it. And I, like, I suppose, as like an 11 year old, I was like, oh my God. Like, (laughs) that's the thing though, man, is that uh, anime did have a rocky start in the United States and it mostly had that rocky start and it's because even as far up as the 90s, cartoons were seen as explicitly four kids. And so it was scandalous during that time to have something where it's like you have like hero getting cut and actually showing blood or to like, you're showing actual teenage angst, right? This isn't like teenage mutant Ninja turtles where they're like, Oh, where's the pizza? Calabunga dude. I mean, like I meme on Gundam wing, but these are people having like actual really terrible uh, adult problems. And so there was this transition that I think Gundam wing and stuff like it sat clearly in the middle in in the West of this view from cartoons is explicitly for kids to being uh, a possible medium for adult entertainment. And I mean, entertainment for adults. I don't mean pornography. No, Uh, that's
0: just regular anime.
1: (laughs) That's just, yeah, it's just regular anime. True. True. Uh, The best examples I can think. So uh, if you look up the top Nielsen rated shows today, what's going to pop up is Rick and Morty which is definitely uh, entertainment for adults. That's definitely not a kid's show. And it's a lot of fun. I love Rick and Morty. I Some people crap on it. Uh, I admit some of the fan base can be pretty annoying. Cue that meme from Reddit. You have to have I, a high IQ to understand Rick and Morty. I don't think that's true. But Rick and Morty is a lot of fun, uh, and I really enjoy it. And uh, I think... Uh, Dan Harmon and uh, oh god, what's
0: his Justin name? Justin Roiland.
1: Justin Roiland. I think they're a lot of fun. I really, 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 really love uh, their improv.
0: Oh, their their improv is fantastic. Their
1: improv sections where that they animate over floor me i never uh, seen in, anything in, like it.
0: Intergalactic Cable is <laughs> yeah. one of the best ideas in any show ever. And you can tell that at, at times they're reaching for stuff and it doesn't always work out. But the way they come no, back they, and animate over it,
1: they keep the stutters in. You know, Morty. You're a piece of shit, Morty. Uh, you put and, the fleeb over the dingle bob. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you, and you're going to hear them breaking and they just, they keep rolling with it and then they animate over it. And it's, you know, it makes it work because you realize these are just guys who are having a good time doing this. And that's something that I think anybody who's ever just sat around, you know, talking with their friends, they can relate to that because there are times when, you know, Sean, Gavin and I get together and someone will make a really insightful point And, The other two are going to be that's a really good point. But then someone comes up with a response that leaves the everybody on the ground crying, laughing.
1: (laughs) There's so look stuff like uh, Rick and Morty represents for me to speak uh, to speak dialectically. So I can take the I can take the show on the high road uh, that we so wish it were actually on. To me, Rick and Morty actually represents a synthesis between uh two trends uh from the 90s and 2000s among animated shows where in the 90s you have cartoons that are for the most part incredibly silly right these are cartoons for kids you have like I don't know. What did I watch as a kid? You have like Sonic the Hedgehog and you have like Zelda and like, Dexter's you have, like
0: lab and
1: Dexter's like, you have like GI Joe where nobody's actually allowed to be shot. You can't say the word kill. And so all those nineties cartoons be like, Oh no, I thought he was destroyed. And you know, 10 year old me is sitting there and be like, I think I, I think you just shot him. But anyway, I'm like, why would he say it that way? Or or
0: in Dragon Ball Z, he was sent to another dimension. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, he sure was, wasn't he?
1: But no. So it's like you get these very, very silly cartoons. And then throughout the 90s, and there's some great commentaries on this, most of all by authors, by like David Foster Wallace, uh, who talk about how uh, the 90s sees the the. Peak of irony and postmodern self-referentiality within pop culture, and you really saw that in cartoons that I grew up with, with stuff like Daria, where it's like the you know the char- the main characters, the protagonists of shows like Daria, are these people who they're not popular, they're not the heroes, they're not the Chads, uh, they're like disaffected misfits uh, doing sort of like a, a, a bland angry commentary in a monotone voice about how everybody around them is stupid and a disappointment. And I really do think that Rick and Morty achieves a synthesis between, uh, the overly silly and the overly sincere because Rick and Morty is 100% incredibly silly. I once again, reference like their, their, uh, eighties factory instructional mock video where they're just like, you take the fleeb and put it over the dingle bop. And then at the end of every episode, usually, there is actually like a very, very sincere plot line that deals with like, they're talking about like uh, family trauma or interpersonal relationships or something. They're doing it in a story, in a narrative driven way, by the way. They're not doing it in like a, they're not doing it in like a crappy like, uh, Steven Universe, uh, BLM PSA type thing. This is thing. not a
0: very special episode.
1: Yeah. Of just, of uh, like, it's it's not on the nose like that. Like it's being story driven. They're just like making a point. And I really like it for that. And I think it represents a synthesis between these two different styles in animation that the West had to kind of go through.
0: I, I forget which episode it was, but there was um, at, some, at one point in Rick and Morty where there's some kind of trauma that hits the family and... Beth immediately goes and starts drinking to the point where her hands are shaking and she's yeah. pouring yeah. and it's like, okay, it's played for laughs, but it's, that it's dark that happens <laughs> yeah. to people. And you know, it's one of those things like, huh, I haven't seen that in a cartoon before. Well, okay. there's a,
1: uh, there's a, there are a couple of episodes where Rick, uh, is obviously trying to kill himself. Oh, yeah. Obviously it reveals that like Rick is some sort of like multi, you know, he's a multi dimensional like demigod, uh, Def, uh, defined and given power in part by his apathy. Uh, and you know, a, a key part of his persona is how much he just doesn't give a shit about anything going on around him. But at the end of like three episodes, it's obvious that he's trying to kill himself.
0: Well, and it's because the, I, I don't think it's possible for any person to truly be 100% apathetic all the time. And I think that the more people try and put that on when it breaks, and when they real and when they you know they let down that illusion for however long i think that the trauma of doing so might actually break them as a person and that's kind of i think what was being shown in those scenes
1: yeah i mean that's the thing so once again one of the things that i appreciate about stuff like rick and morty uh is the fact that they are sincere but they are all, they are also like incredibly silly uh and once again it's not for kids it is definitely <laughs> <right>? <laughs> it is definitely for uh, adults it,
0: On the incredibly slim chance that you've never watched Rick and Morty, there is an episode where a hive mind consciousness takes over an entire planet of people, and it is one of Rick Sanchez's ex-girlfriends, and he proceeds throughout the entire episode the entire to gestalt have sex cons- consciousness. with the entire yeah. planet <laughs> to the point where he says, all right, take, take a stadium, fill it full of redheads. And I want every person on the planet who lo- even slightly resembles my dad to be inside it cheering me on. And I want to hang glide into it. I mean, it's, it's absurd, but even with that, you can kind of see something about the so character. It's a message
1: Rick. about like, because, uh, it shows that, uh, Rick, uh, he has access to like this gestalt consciousness, this alien consciousness that takes over the people of this planet uh, but he experiences like true ennui right which is uh i don't know if it comes from Baudelaire this french uh, poet he he wrote a poem and it's called ennui and it's you know somebody who's become like so sexually overstimulated that nothing really excites them anymore and rick is obviously suffering from some form of ennui. like he has access to you know once again an entire planet's worth of sexual advent- adventures that can morph into anything he wants and at the end he's like still depressed and empty and suicidal yeah which is it's an incredible message i'm not like it's not good like i'm not stoked about the message but it's a very true message it's a very true and very sincere message and it's
0: not the sort of thing you expect from a show that has the visual aesthetic of rick and morty which is again kind of that that cal art style of the oddly shaped head, the bendy limbs, um, you know, the, the kind of way out there hairstyles for some of the characters. It's very
1: geometric, simple color palette stuff. Yeah. Like that. I
0: mean, there's very little in the wish it's mostly flat colors. Yeah. So it's, it's not high art, but it's much more complex.
1: And also just the, I don't know where stylistically this came from. It's the, uh, like one of my few complaints about Rick and Morty is that the ink blot pupil thing,
0: yeah, What Whereas the hell is that about? I don't even know if it's an ink blot or maybe like a scribbly thing, just like a take your ballpoint pen and scribble and that's your pupil. I don't know. And it, it kind of weirds me out.
1: I guess I just, I always thought it looked stupid, but uh, other than that, I mean, in the off chance that somewhere out there, uh, Justin Roiland and Dan Harmon are listening. I love Rick and Morty. It's wonderful. Thank you. And on the off <laughs> chance
0: that uh, you're listening, please do more uh, dramatic readings of court proceedings. <laughs> <laughs> that was probably... Okay, look up Rick and Morty courtroom, and that's all I'll say, and you're welcome. All right, fair enough. Um, actually, you know, you, you there is another show that I think you probably watched that was maybe a little bit more mature that was Western. Um, definitely more mature than its contemporaries, and that would be Batman the Animated Series. Yeah. That was... That was a show. <laughs> um, I remember watching that in uh, whenever my I was at my dad's office, because I would go there after school uh, when he was still self, uh, you know, doing his uh, self uh, practice in law. And it was on Fox 25 here in Oklahoma City. And. I had you know, I was a little kid, I didn't know anything about kind of the crime noir aesthetic, the hardboiled detective But again, that's something I never thought, I mean, you still don't see that in kids shows and it was definitely nothing like had been in a kid's show before. I mean, Scooby-Doo was the closest thing to a detective show for kids. Maybe, um, like whatever the speed buggy TV show was or something Mm -hmm. where you you get these group of teenagers and they're all uh, teenagers. Yeah. Right. And they're solving crimes, but then you have like an actual investigative procedural cartoon for kids and people are dying and getting shot.
1: I just liked it because it was like you said, it, it was a noir show. And I mean, let's say it was for I mean, it was for kids in the sense that it was broadcast uh, on a channel and during a time in which kids would be watching. It definitely was the darkest of its time. The, like the next dark thing that I can think that would even touch it isn't even all that dark. Uh, I remember uh, there was a show on called Darkwing Duck.
0: Oh, yeah. That and I, was and that was more slapstick than anything. I
1: was slapstick. It was crazy. But I, however, I did have a very evangelical babysitter who I remember. Uh her son uh she found her son uh showing me Darkwing Duck in the back room whenever he was like babysitting me and she just like saw the name of it and was that it was like called Darkwing Duck and like flipped out and like told him to go to his room and I wasn't allowed to watch TV. And I don't know, man. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's A lot a lot of adults during that time didn't really understand I, th- I think it par- partially had to do with the newness for it because uh, a lot of adults, even the time when we were growing up, they didn't really understand. I, I think they thought that cartoons were way worse than they actually were. And if only they could see cartoons now, they would <laughs> understand that Darkwing Duck was perfectly innocent. Oh,
0: yeah. <laughs> no, I mean... Probably the most offensive thing about that would be if you were absolutely insane, you could say that the whole let's get dangerous that was advocating for child harm or something. But even that Uh, was
1: that show is full of Anitida which is which is.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, let's (laughs) be real.
1: I've been looking for a context to use that word since I learned it (laughs) four years ago and I finally organically got the chance to use it. When talking about Darkwing Duck, all right, in this that's podcast. the episode, everybody. Thanks for <laughs> coming. Right. So anyway,
0: no, I mean it, the uh, the idea though that a cartoon crime fighter is somehow dangerous. Like how? Aren't we supposed to be teaching kids that there are heroes and villains out, you know, in the world that there are good guys and bad guys, and shouldn't we be using s- some way? Uh, entertainment to kind of teach that delineation in a way that they can understand at their age level.
1: Well, so the problem is in the West for a very long time, the category of hero and villain has been uh, deconstructed and destabilized. And I mean, we've been doing that all the way back since like the 1960s. Uh, And it's in response to the fact that like the fifties and sixties TV shows, stuff like the Lone Ranger and stuff, stuff that like my dad watched, you know, this is a guy wearing literally a white, suit like this is like vaudeville portrayals of good guy and bad guy and okay so fine that's on the nose but ultimately in at the end of the day uh i think it did ultimately like it taught good values and it was values that like the previous generation sort of grew up on and we're like all right there's good guys and bad guys and what happened after the 1960s, uh, after the civil rights movement, uh, after the women's movement makes a bunch of advances and enters women to the workplace in the 70s, in the entertainment industry, you start to see it becomes more popular to deconstruct older narratives because they're seen they're seen as uh, like like uh, pylons for all these like oppressive institutions that hover above everyone else. And so what happens? You get a lot of these reversals. Right? There's a whole lot of uh, there are no more clear villains. Uh, you get you know after vietnam uh, i don't remember where i read this this is not my take but i read this somewhere that you see the explosion of comic book anti-heroes in the wake of vietnam and it's because vietnam introduced this sort of like uh pop moral ambiguity uh, well the punisher the was
0: introduced as as a result of vietnam and the punisher is kind of the ultimate comic anti-hero
1: well seriously the punisher is but my favorite one cuz i'm not really a comics guy but i love spawn oh yeah Spawn's definitely an anti-hero in that vein. And, like, those are cool to me. I like the anti-hero, right? And I actually think there's a great amount of value to the anti-hero because the anti-hero can question the hero while still being a hero. That's very different from the deconstructed hero who merely appears to be a hero but is actually, like, a giant jerk. I don't know. I think, like, Gaston or something. Yeah. Or, like... Or you get the reconstructed or rehabilitated villain where in pop culture, all over the pop culture landscape, uh, you have this entire genre where every single villain has to have some sympathetic background that made them the way they are. So they remake like, uh, Cruella DeVille, you know, her name is a portmanteau for cruel devil, but let's make her sympathetic. There's what, what was the movie Maleficent?
0: Yeah, there, there was Maleficent and then there was a sequel, and you take this literal devil figure, this sorceress who, uh, you know, kidnaps children and becomes a dragon. And we need to make her sympathetic. And actually she's the good guy because the kingdom that she kidnapped the baby from, well, they were actually evil and encroaching on the majesty of nature.
1: The King man's playing to her. <laughs> that was the evil committed against her and she Hulk. I'm sorry, by the way, but my earlier, my earlier diatribe on the MCU had to do with the fact that, that i had to see what everybody was talking about so i looked up this like meg the stallion and uh, she hulk twerking scene and as soon as i watched it i like turned it off and i immediately messaged tom with how much i hate marvel i hated it was it when it was iron man and i hate it 10 times more now with meg the stallion twerking anyway sorry now that we have that aside <laughs> So you have this entire genre of like sympathetic villains, uh, like, you know, my nephew's like that, like despicable me.
0: Oh yeah.
1: Uh, this whole idea that, uh, and I look, I get the very moral impulse behind doing this because it's a response to the literal black and white narratives of yesteryear uh, being like, well, is the world full of just good guys and bad guys? Look, man, I'm a historian. I'm I'm well aware of the fact that uh, human history is filled with all of the ambiguities that humans themselves uh, are filled with. There is some value to be had in very clear-cut stories, though. Maybe it's not the best way to portray the world, but like, as humans anyway, we will always end up producing uh, simplified pictures of... To entertain ourselves and I do think that's like a good way to transmit values we've been doing it since the beginning of time Uh, the Greeks taught their children uh, Herodotus to inculcate them with values it was taught in school so people knew this is what good Greek values are this is what a man should be this is how he should view like heroics this is how he should view relationships with like foreigners or himself or whatever uh, and whether you agree or disagree with those values, there is very much this conscious idea that stories are tools for educating children. We kind of pretend that they're not today, but we all kind of know that they still are. And well, yeah. I, I don't know if like villain ambiguity is always the best way to educate children.
0: Well, the other problem with that, and I think, um, <clears throat> I think you can see that, uh, in modern politics and in modern criminal justice. If you look, there's been some big name, you know, big stories in the news lately of, you know, these big cities where you have DAs and prosecutors who, for whatever reason are not prosecuting, not charging. They're not locking up people who are active harms to society. Uh, It, you can barely go a week without seeing another story of some guy who has 40 plus arrests assaulting somebody and either getting killed in self defense or murdering somebody. And it comes out, Oh yeah, he's been charged uh, for assault 30 times. He's been arrested 40 times. He just got out of prison. He was let out because of cashless bail He and all this other stuff. And this actually brings up a uh, special appearance by someone we mentioned in a previous episode. Uh, the hopefully soon former DA of, I believe San Francisco, Chessa Budin, the son uh. of the Boudins who were implicated and convicted in the Brinks armored car robbery that we talked about in our, when, you know, the episode we discussed when leftists were bombing America. And I'm going to have a spicy take here, and this might be a little bit too hot for some people, but maybe we shouldn't be electing the sons of convicted murderers and terrorists as part of our criminal justice system.
1: My God, Tom, shut it off, shut it off, <laughs> shut it off, shut it all off. Look, here's the thing. Something that I've always wondered is that you have a generation that's been raised on uh, this almost pathological altruism that gets presented in our cartoons where every single person who does bad things has to have an understandable narrative uh the reason they do bad things is almost always external to them and if just these things hadn't happened to them uh they would be a different person and maybe that's true but it also like uh, i think one of the things it does i'm instead of going through like a big labyrinthian explanation i think this is where like the popularity of safe injection sites comes from No, no no i'm dead serious because it comes from this it comes from this uh, ethos that all problems that have to do with like uh, with uh, human action can be solved through empathy and empathy politics is actually really dangerous. One of the reasons it's really dangerous is because it sounds really, really nice, but there's actually an incredible arrogance uh, hiding within empathy politics because the whole idea is that if only you could understand, like it, it, it betrays this idea that everybody is all fundamentally the same And that if we could all just sort of step into each other's shoes temporarily, we would act and think the same because we're all ultimately sort of interchangeable. And the implication hidden within it is also that if you could just switch shoes with me, you would probably be doing the same things I'm doing, right?
0: Uh, I'll disagree. I don't think I would uh, be chopping people up and stuffing them in suitcases.
1: Well, yeah, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the system of thought The implication within this system of thought is that because all human beings are sort of interchangeable, like if you had grown up uh, being abused like a serial killer or something, then maybe you would have turned out to be a serial killer too. Maybe that's true, but what the problem is, is what those empathy politics ultimately do is they really, really incentivize this like pathological uh, altruistic thinking where somebody commits something bad and instead of taking like a retributive stance where we're just like, all right, you've made society suffer, therefore we're going to make you suffer uh, in equal volume and measure to the way you've made society suffer. It's you've done something bad and we want to rehabilitate you. And so we're going to approach this with absolute understanding. I'm sure in some cases that can work, but I think in other cases it becomes indulgence. And I really do think the fact that you have this incredible spike in uh, drug-related deaths around uh, safe injection sites really attest to this idea that uh, an overly empathetic approach can slide very easily into indulgence. And I think it very, very much has to do with some of the attitudes we've been talking about in these cartoons.
0: Yeah. Um, and that kind of was, I didn't maybe necessarily articulate it well. That's kind of what I was talking about with like Chesabudin and these other DAs, uh, where, You can't necessarily rehabilitate if there isn't a process for doing so. If all you're doing is taking someone down to the police station, filling out a couple of forms, and then letting them go, that's not rehabilitative. I want to believe that there are people who can be rehabilitated away from criminal behavior. I want to believe that you know the guy who got into a street fight is not actually going to be a violent person all of his life. I want to believe that... Just because my, my religion tells me that, you know, everybody can be redeemed, but you can't do that without some kind of redemptive process. And I don't have a, and you know, you're, we're talking about these villains in cartoons and movies and media who get redeemed by, you know, a, a stern talking to from the hero or, you know,
1: a convincing monologue by Picard <laughs>
0: Okay, let's let's talk about Veggie Tales for leftists. While we're at this, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, the the idea that you can have a villain who is con- converted away from their evil ways without some great struggle or sacrifice or punishment doesn't make sense to me. I mean,
1: it's an incredible naivety naivety as to what evil is and how evil works, which really makes me want to talk about something Uh, you were, you had just brought up Batman and something in Batman that always bothered me is it's a key piece of morality to uh, the Batman franchise that just bugs the ever living hell out of me. And it represents a bunch of this like moral naivety that you find in this pop culture stuff. And that's Batman's no kill rule.
0: Oh yeah. Um, There's a meme on the internet basically. And I'm pretty sure it's been brought up in the comics or in the show at some point of, is is Batman at some point responsible for the Joker's crimes uh, because he refuses to kill the Joker and the Joker keeps breaking out of Arkham Prison?
1: Right. That's what bothers me about it. So I had this argument with a friend of mine who I very deeply intellectually respect and he's like you know he's got like a grad degree in philosophy he's a smart dude we were sitting there talking about this and the first line he brings up and he's like he brings up the line that batman himself says and i don't know i haven't seen all the time not like you nerds uh you know i watched the animated series and i watched the christopher nolan movies and then i just watched the recent one with robert pattinson Uh, But he says, oh, if I kill somebody, then I've only increased the number of killers in the world, Uh, which is really stupid because that, first of all, implies that all killers are just, like, one for one. Like, if I kill a dude who would have realistically killed, like, a thousand people had I not killed him, uh, no. No. (laughs) That's, like, what are you talking about? Uh, But that's, that's, like, the main defense that gets rallied in defense of, like, Batman's no-kill rule. And plus all these ideas, like, Uh, the driving idea behind the Joker is that if he can just make Batman kill somebody, then he'll be exactly the same as the Joker, except no, not really. Uh, I, if, if Batman can practice the sort of discipline and moderation, cause like all killing isn't the same, right? Cause I understand the, uh, the, uh, Really hyper like hyper moralizing sentiment behind it, where it's just like, oh, well, if you start killing, then you've you know, you've appointed yourself like judge, jury and executioner. He already has. And that's the thing is, I'm like, well, he's already appointed himself by being a vigilante is the dude who at the very least beats the hell out of dudes and turns them over to a justice system, which depending on which universe you're in is arguably worse.
0: So well, I don't know and, how great of a dude you are. If you've ever played the Arkham games, uh, it's not just that he's beating the hell out of him. He's rupturing lungs and breaking legs. Dude,
1: and he's like... As he's long, like, as, long as they don't die within five minutes of him touching me. he's like... He's, dude, it's like the no-death runs. <laughs> the Dark Souls no-death runs yeah. on YouTube. Like, no deaths. <laughs> no kills. Didn't kill him. <laughs>
0: <It's>, <laughs> no, I mean, it's... The whole no-killing rule thing is... Childish at best when you look at what the character is supposedly fighting against. Yes, you have street level criminals, uh, you have organized crime, but then you get into some of the weird stuff like uh, the actual League of Shadows and Raz Al Ghul from the comics and from the animated series, where he's not just some, you know, religious zealot trying to institute a more traditional order and bring people away and bring societies away from decadence. No, is he's Ra's an actual. G- is
1: Ra's al Ghul based?
0: <laughs> uh, you know, maybe.
1: Oh my god, oh, no, <laughs> no! I'm a horrible in, in, person.
0: In the comics and in the in the animated series, he was more of a, some sort of immortal or semi-immortal creature from beyond time that I wanted to he return just, to power. I
1: thought he just had a bathtub or something that made him kind of. Yeah, I'm sounding like no. such a boomer right now.
0: I mean, I'm not an expert by any stretch, no, he but had, he, is he had some cave. Yeah, there was some like resurrection. Uh, uh, I think they called it the Lazarus Pit or something because they were going for max symbolism. That's
1: <laughs> bit on bit on the nose. Uh, no, so here's the thing: is like I really like Batman. No kill rule bothers me. Also, look, not that a cartoon should have fully realistic portrayals of violence, but anybody who thinks that that would be even like remotely possible in real life. Uh, if you get in enough, like hand to hand fist fights where people are like using like lead pipes and stuff,
0: that no kill rule is going to go out the window. Somebody's, real fast.
1: somebody's dying. And if you're the one with the no kill rule, that's probably going to be you. Uh,
0: so I mentioned the Punisher earlier. There is a, you know, the Punisher was created by Marvel, but there was another company that Ugh. did a run with uh, the character and it was the, the max series, Punisher max. And it took the character in not just a more realistic depiction of, you know, death and violence, but it hyper exaggerated it to the point where the character was not just a PTSD Vietnam vet, but he became kind of the embodiment of vengeance on Earth. And it's exactly as insane as it you would think, because he's getting shot to hell. All the victims are getting shot to hell. He's lighting you know up he's if you've ever seen the movie punisher war zone i believe it was where he sets up this uh kill zone outside of a mob dinner and just absolutely massacres an entire house full of organized crime guys they do even more of that in the comic series and that's just how it starts and that is far more realistic and makes more sense in a terrible kind of way than batman's no killing rule
1: I mean, I think uh, the Punisher was always uh, supposed to be the more realistic uh, portrayal of what vigilanteism would look like, because obviously, I mean, you have like Batman, which is fantastical, and then you have Spawn, which is by definition fantasy, yeah. uh, but they all sit within like this anti-hero uh, vigilante genre, which is really cool, which is, you know, I was an angsty teen. I enjoyed Uh, dude, I, one of the, as a side note, this reminds me, and it's not particularly related to any theme we're talking about. There was this weird period in the nineties with a bunch of, uh, how shall I say? Ambitious crossovers where it's like dark horse comics had like Batman versus aliens. Oh yes. And like spawn versus predator wild, wild stuff.
0: I mean, they were fever dreams.
1: I know. I still have, I have a giant box that, ha- now, one of the best comics that ever came out, by the way, was the Aliens Omnibus, and this, like, it still rode on the, uh, uh, it still wrote on the canon of the movie Alien and Aliens, and it was before, like, everything got all screwed up with, like, I don't know, like. Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection.
0: We don't talk about those movies.
1: Joss Whedon being Joss Whedon and like Prometheus and all that crap. Uh, these were like comic books based on that. They are in, there's some, I think they're probably some of the darkest comics I have. I still have a box with all that stuff around here. I have a bunch of like, it's full of like Aliens, Batman, Warhammer, of course. Of course it's full of Warhammer. Warhammer Fantasy and 40K. Cause I'm a, I'm a big boy. <laughs> I'm a grown man. I,
0: I like my comics with violence and blood.
1: A man of culture, I see.
0: Yeah. No, actually, the very first comic book I ever read, um, that I, or at least that I remember reading, was The Death of Superman. Um, and it was pretty violent for, you know, when I was reading it, and I was like seven, six, seven years old. And all the, multiple characters are getting, you know, broken in half, and uh, Superman himself is covered in blood at one point. And then towards the end, spoiler alert, Superman is killed.
1: Dude, here's the thing, by the way. Uh, if we want to lose listeners, this is how we do it. So, I don't know if anybody knows yet, but I'm absolutely, like, I just despise uh, superhero stuff, except for, like, a sparse few things like Batman. Superman is a horrible superhero, and it's because Superman is a Gary Sue. Yes. And I don't like... And here's the thing. In any fiction, I don't like OP characters. I don't like Superman. He's a Gary Sue. I don't like... Uh, the elves in uh peter jackson's portrayal of lord of the rings because they're also like
0: they work best as an outside force of nature that you don't really understand
1: they're all like super op chads and to the point where it's kind of nonsensical like they're all they've all been alive for like thousands of years and they every arrow shot is perfect and it's like uh,
0: except for the ones that really matter in uh the battle of Helm's deep when you can't take down the one guy carrying the torch into the, uh, <laughs> giant chamber into the giant bomb that they planted underneath the wall. Every arrow shot is perfect except for those. Dude, no,
1: I just love that scene where, uh, they're sitting on the wall of Helm's deep. And I think when the elf commander from like the wood elf realm, like came to like help them or whatever. And, uh, as the orcs are marching, he's just like, orc armor is vulnerable, uh, at the neck and under the arms. And I expected the guy to be like, oh, you mean like all pieces of armor ever. <laughs> Thanks guy. Shut up. Get back in line.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, to bring this back around to animation. Yeah. Cause we kind of got off topic. Go to further we, afield we, we, we had some fun though, uh, to bring this back around to animation. Um, one show that I think you might disagree with me on, but that I absolutely loved. Feel free. Futurama. Yeah. I still think that's one of the best shows of all time. Totally for the opposite reasons that people would like the Simpsons, even though it's by the same creator and features some of the same gags and ideas. It is definitely
1: Matt Groening. Uh, no, look, Futurama is fun. I like I've watched. I, you know, I think probably sometime in my 20s, I went through a big old depression and I probably binged every single episode of Futurama and Futurama is sincere. It's, it's silly, but it's also sincere. It has a very sincere plot line. There are some episodes like the episode with like the dog Oh yeah, uh, that like, you know, they bring a tear to your eye and stuff. I mean, I like Futurama. If I, if I had to give any complaint about Futurama, it's going to be the obvious and that it's like, it's Matt groaning. So it's absolutely replete with uh, a combination of like uh, Dawkins style goober atheism and given the era it was made in uh sort of stereotypical like bush bad politics
0: oh so we do agree
1: yeah no like here's the thing it's a great show and I watch shows that disagree with me all the time I mean given the average of opinion in Hollywood if I didn't watch shows made by people who disagreed with me. I would just never watch anything yeah. like here's the, thing. I really like Futurama. I really appreciate Matt Groening. And I will say this, Matt Groening's humor is unique. Like a lot of humor, uh, you can sort of see branching off one another or it's related to like some other gag, but a lot of like Matt Groening type stuff is very unique to what he does. Cause I also like the show, uh, disenchanted. I
0: never actually saw that.
1: Go watch it. And the thing is, I tried to watch it and I tried to spread the word of watching it because like, because it's a Netflix show. I know that like its head is perpetually on a chopping block and that I know that the people in the boardroom at Netflix just have a dartboard with all their shows and they just have their interns get hammered and throw darts to see what gets canceled next. I know that's how they choose it. They already canceled uh dark crystal age of resistance. Those bastards but i'm af- I keep being afraid they're gonna cancel disenchanted Disenchanted is like a f- it's fantasy Futurama kinda okay It's a lot of fun. I really enjoy it and it's and as I was watching it, I was just like, I don't know anybody else who does like groaning type gags
0: yeah i mean it's it's very unique i d- I think they're you know the Simpsons Futurama. And now that you've mentioned it, disenchanted. Go give it think, a watch. I think that's watch. about as far as that style of comedy, I think that's really about all there is like that. But I, I have to say I preferred the Futurama episodes that weren't some kind of messaging um or that didn't have some overarching morality tale with them. And my favorite character in the show is Zap Brannigan because he's just so <laughs> stupid. He's basically Captain Kirk. Dude, there's
1: something about like there's something about Giga Chad characters. All from like look from Gaston and Zap Brannigan all the way back to epic like the Epic of Gilgamesh. Because, like, Gilgamesh, how does the Epic of Gilgamesh opens? It's the it's a, it's a complaint from the people of Uruk about how Gilgamesh is enslaving all the men to build giant building projects, and he's screwing their wives where the, while they're building all this stuff for him. And he goes around beating people up and bullying them. But also, nobody can touch him. He's just this, like... He's this, like, nine-foot-tall mad lad Giga-Chad who just goes around fucking people up. And that archetype of just the insane Giga-Chad that somehow... A hero... Like, still a hero, but not exactly, like, your favorite dude. Because, like, if you look at stuff like Beauty and the Beast, like...
0: Gaston would have been the good guy in any other
1: well, era. Well, like, Gaston, Gaston's the bad guy purely through perspective, right? Yeah. Like, if you didn't see... If they didn't make, like, the Beast sympathetic and they didn't, like, oh, he was once a prince, but he pissed off a witch and now he's cursed, it would just be about a giant beast kidnapping this dude that Gaston has a crush on. You know, because one of the things they have to emphasize at the beginning of, of the movie is Gaston being like, huh, a woman reading like they're they're trying to make him unsympathetic. Uh, but like, what does he do? He does the hero thing. Right. He,
0: he gathers the townsfolk to rescue the damsel go, in distress. To go on a
1: raid on the castle and get the damsel in distress. And that's a part of sort of like this trope of subversion we've been talking about. Yeah.
0: And like I said, in any other era, Gaston would have been the hero.
1: Right. And that doesn't mean he's just necessarily like
0: a great dude. Cause <laughs> so is there any kind of, I don't know, morality play that's coming back? Or if you had to look at a morality play of today's media, cartoons, animation, whatever you want to call it, is there anything, I don't know, valuable in it?
1: Uh, well there's definitely a series of moral prescriptions there and i think every like the stories of every single age reflect uh the morality that people want to consume you know i don't know how much of like a feedback loop there is that stories define the morality that people have or the morality that people have defines the stories that they'll ultimately consume but i do think if someone were to ask me about like a long-term trend in western civilization i have my own okay so you had your own conspiracy about uh, pixar mom butts uh i think a lot of uh the cultural place that we're sitting in uh morally especially with uh you know we've we've put a premium on rebellion and to some extent like victim politics and i trace that all back to 1964 uh, the General Electric Holiday Hours, uh, Rudolph the Red Nose Reindeer, which was this.
0: Hold on, let me go get my uh, my tinfoil hat.
1: You better put you better strap that on. So, in 1964, this claymation cartoon, which I'm sure everybody listening to this has seen, uh, this was like the General Electric Christmas special, and it was just the story of Rudolph the Red Nose Reindeer, which was written. In like the 1930s or something, but like now it's like this—it's this seminal, like foundational part of the secular like Christmas story. Right? Everybody knows the story of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Everybody knows the song. It's about—it's not a book. It was a song written by in like the 30s, but the movie follows the song, and it is about a reindeer named Rudolph, and he has a big red shiny nose, and this marks him out as a freak and an object of ostracism from the other reindeer. And so they exclude him. They bully him. They don't let him play any reindeer games. And then finally, uh, Sant—like on one foggy Christmas night, Santa realizes that, that Rudolph's big red shiny nose may be of some use and allows him to pull the sleigh. And sure enough, Santa's able to deliver the gifts to all the kids, and it's because Rudolph lit his way and so after rudolph has basically shown that his 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 deformity like gives him like utility or like (laughs) (laughs) all of a sudden he becomes like like, he has
0: value he has value
1: and the reindeer respect him and like santa respects him and everything which is a fine morality tale like i see what it's going and what it's trying to say because ever since 1964 almost like Uh, not all, a a good chunk of the cartoons that kids consume have been centered around the idea of the misunderstood misfit uh, that ultimately turns out to be uh, more useful or morally superior to everyone else. And I think that very much fits in with the time. Now, that's not the only moral lesson within Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. The most obvious moral lesson in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is you shouldn't bully people for being different and I think that's a very good lesson you shouldn't you you shouldn't bully people for deformities and things over which like they had no choice
0: you can however bully them for their choices like liking anime
1: true and I do 100 uh, percent and I think that's a very very good lesson however I think it rides passenger to this other thing that has had such uh, a disproportional effect on the culture and that's this almost sacralization of misfits and it's something that you sort of see all across the culture where uh, all heroes now like from 19 from the 1960s all the way through like modern pop culture uh and you can see it there are millions of stories you can see it in you can see it uh, in like finding nemo you can see it in the latest season of stranger things where the misfits and the outcasts are always misunderstood Right. And it's the standard sort of like Chad guys who would have been a hero in any other age who are actually the real bad guys. These are actually the real human villains. And the misfit is almost always innocent. The misfit is almost always morally superior. And so you have this, you have the beginning of the deconstruction of the hero and the rehabilitation of the misfit and the outcast. I really think starting with like Rudolph Rednose, Rudolph the red nose reindeer in the culture.
0: No, I think, I think you're right. I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, the star Wars sequels, you have a misfit kind of outcast character in Ray who without getting into the, the Mary Sue aspects of her, because that's a whole other thing, but she's an orphan. She's, are a, these the Ryan Johnson movies? Uh, well it's the Ryan Johnson did one of them. Okay. I think maybe I, I've, I, I watched, watched about,
1: I watched about five minutes of the new star Wars and I was like, Oh <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, but no, I mean, you have a scrap scavenger in Rey, you have a, an outcast former stormtrooper who escaped, and then you have a hot-headed pilot who pisses people off, and that's your core trio in this new trilogy. And they're all misunderstood, they're all kind of misfits, except they're cool misfits, And they're supposed to be our heroes.
1: Well, that's the thing. That's where whenever you have a tale where misfits are all the heroes, then what you're saying is that uh, the enemy is society, right? Or rather, the enemy is social norms or norms in general. Because the very act of being a misfit, the very act of being both a hero and outcast from society, means that society isn't valuing its heroes. That the truly moral people are the people who have been cast out from the city.
0: And and wouldn't that mean that there's a transvaluation of values, as you like to say, going on where they're trying to teach the consumers of this media that the only way to be morally superior is to step outside of these norms?
1: I think the transvaluation of values, like in the Nietzschean sense, is preceded by a deconstruction of the previous set of values. And that's a story that holds in, philo- in academic philosophy all throughout like the 1960s specifically people like Marcuse where we can't imagine the perfect world uh, because the society we live in now uh, we're not, we're not even capable of having the thoughts of imagining what the perfect world would be like. So what we have to do is we first have to deconstruct all the morality and tropes and archetypes and things that we love now so that we can reconstruct ourselves into a more perfect world. And I think, We're very much in the middle of the deconstruction phase. And that's what postmodernism has done. That's what it's done to storytelling, where we destroy tropes by interrogating them and deconstructing them. And a deconstruction can be nice and innocent. It can even be welcome sometimes because deconstruction, you know, what if somebody is a tyrant? What if somebody is abusing their power? What if somebody is doing something terrible? You should obviously be deconstructing what they're doing and saying something against it. The problem is that whenever deconstruction escapes its uh, it's uh, reasonably cordoned off space and becomes something to interrogate every single norm in society where it ends up as a staple of every single piece of pop culture is that consumed, uh, that is consumed until you end up with a generation of people who are convinced that every single person who does evil things uh, has a good reason for doing it and that it's not their fault, it's society's fault. There is a direct link between uh, politics and the lessons of things that we consume in our childhood. I think it would be naive to suggest otherwise.
0: So I guess... I want to bring this back to the very first episode we ever recorded. We were talking, you know, abolition of man, C.S. Lewis. And at one point in the book, he says, you cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. And I think people are too preoccupied trying to take these, you know, timeless stories, the timeless ideas of hero defeats villain Uh, hero gets the girl, hero saves the day, hero saves the village whatever you you want it to be and I think people are too preoccupied trying to overcomplicate it and look at the villain as some kind of sympathetic figure as we've discussed and say okay how can we redeem this character by giving him some kind of trauma or past that expiates everything he's doing, we can redeem him without changing him
1: I think uh, this overall degradation in quality within media, or at least a degradation in quality that I'll say is partially aesthetic, partially philosophical, and partially moral, uh, I will end with another, a quote from another author, author we have covered who's quite different from C.S. Lewis, and that's Baudrillard. Baudrillard said that art dies not because there's not enough of it, but because there is too much of it.
0: Culture Camp is hosted by Sean and Gavin. It's recorded, produced, and edited by Tom. Our opening track is The Mountains Don't Care About You by Dr. Turtle, and our closing track is Freeze Frame by Stay Loose. You can contact us at culturecamp.cast at gmail.com, that's kulturekam cast at gmail.com, to send us comments, questions, and topic ideas. Be sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, google podcast and on twitter at culture camp cast on minds.com at culture camp and thanks for listening